So welcome back to Blended. I'm joined by another amazing panel of guests. And today we're talking about workplace discrimination. This is quite a sensitive subject. I think it's something that a lot of people have actually experienced but it's not something we like to talk much about. So of course, it's a topic we want to tackle head on. So welcome to DC, Miles, Brittany, and Jennifer, who are going to share their thoughts and experiences with us today. So thank you all for joining us and let's get started with some introductions. Can you each tell me who you are, what you do, and how you identify? DC, let's start with you. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Um, happy to be here. My name is DC Spregola. I am the founder and CEO of Nugent Architects, a supply chain transformation consulting and advisory firm. I identify as a millennial and Afro-Latina, and my pronouns are she and her. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Jennifer, you're up next. Bojo. I'm Jennifer Bell. I live in Shawnee, Oklahoma, and work for the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. I identify as an Indigenous female mother of one little boy, um, and I my pronouns are she, her. Great. So glad to have you here. Miles, you're up next. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on here, Sarah and everyone. Um, my name is Miles Varghese. Um, I'm co-founder and CEO of a freight forwarding uh, platform and collaboration uh, company called Cargo Logic. Stumbled into the supply chain um, after working at a couple of Miami Tech uh, companies, you know, here in Miami. I never thought I'd be in the space, but um, you know, I have a penchant for building really great relationships. Um, you know, and I'm an enterprise uh, sales guy by nature. Uh, my parents uh, came over here from India uh, back in the '80s, and I'm um, one of uh, two sons. Um, and uh, how do I identify uh, he, him? Awesome. Thank you. So happy to have you here. And last but absolutely not least, Brittany. Thanks, Sarah. I'm Brittany. I am a marketing director and also one of the leads for the DE&I initiatives over at my company. I identify as she, her. I am thirty in my 30s, single woman, and I am mixed race. I am both a mix of European and Black Caribbean, but I am also white passing. So I do try to acknowledge the privilege I have with that. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. All right. So let's get this started. Let's start off with some basics. So who wants to start us off by really giving us a definition of what is workplace discrimination? I mean, I hear about it all over the place, but we don't necessarily talk about it very much. So let's define it about so that we can get started in this conversation. Who wants to start? DC? Sure. Um, I actually am resisting the urge to Google it to find like the real official, <laughs> you know, that. whenever you're asked for the definition of something, you always want it to be right, you know, so you sound really smart, but I'm going to resist that urge because for the sake of the conversation, I do think it is very important for us to understand what that means from like an individual perspective, yes. um, because I do think it is important, obviously, for everyone to know what discrimination is. So I will be vulnerable and and, you know, maybe this is right. Maybe it isn't right. Um, because I have, of course, like many other people taken like the HR courses of what is discrimination versus bullying versus harassment. And, you know, what are the laws around it, et cetera. So um, from my perspective, growing up in the U.S. with anti-discrimination laws in the workplace, things like that, I always look at workplace discrimination as a 
clear barrier or blockage to a job or an opportunity, a role because of not necessarily the way that someone identifies, but by how that person is perceived. So whether it be a disability, whether it be sexual orientation, whether it be, you know, race or ethnicity, but someone is blocking this individual from, again, a role, a job, an opportunity, because that person is, insert whatever here, Black or um, overweight or, you know, disabled or whatever that might be. And that is what I identify as discrimination. I love that. Thank you. I did Google it. So just so we have a definition from Google, discrimination in the workplace occurs when an individual or groups are treated unfairly or unequally based on certain characteristics. So I think, you know, that is really aligned with what you've said, but making it personal and and that's what we're here for today is really to talk about those stories and what we've seen. Brittany, what what do you think about workplace discrimination? Yeah, when I think of workplace discrimination, and I definitely had to fight the urge to Google it, but I think that it is when a particular aspect of a person's identity is weaponized in such a way that it ends up making the workplace feel hostile or unsafe to that individual and also has a the chance of basically limiting or directly impacting their ability to earn their own livelihood. So that can, as EC said, be something like gender or race. It can be disability. It can be age. Um, it can just be physical appearance. It's really just something that someone takes hold of. Um, as a perceived idea of what that person is and uses it against them. Yeah, it could be bias, unconscious bias. Miles, I'm going to turn to you right now because you're a CEO of a company. You're a leader, right? DC is too. But as a as a CEO, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> as a CEO, you know what do what do those words mean to you? And to DC's point, you know how do we differ from bullying, harassment, victimization, microaggressions? Like, there's so much to this, right? There's so many correlations. So, as a leader, how do you view workplace discrimination, and how do you differ between all of those that were were sort of underneath? So you hire and, and consult with someone who can help you out in, in those areas, basically. I think um, as human beings, you know, our brains have a natural tendency to put things, people, you know, color and everything else that they've learned and, or they've been taught or, or they've heard or um, something that they read in a book or read, you know, in, in a channel or, or in a forum that they shouldn't have been on. Um, that's essentially kind of taking this perspective that they have of you uh, and attaching a negative connotation when they really don't know anything about you. You know, they haven't had the time to build a relationship with you. They don't care to, you know, often um, to, to get to know who you are a little bit deeper, you know, uh, beyond what they're able to see at the surface level. And I think, you know, folks and, and human beings naturally have this tendency and, and the brain works that way because it just makes things easier uh, to kind of um, claw through, right, and, and to uh, delineate. Uh, and, and how do we differ, right? Uh, I think that's kind of where you, you know, you ought to bring in uh, expertise and someone to really educate you on this. And, and even, you know, um, being the, the, the son of, um, you know, Indian immigrants, um, it's something that uh, I think I still even struggle with, too. Um, and, and often, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether you're here or you know, you're in India, uh, right? It's the, the script is just going to be flipped a little bit. You know, every single you know person, every single region, every single area generally has 
you know, certain preset stereotypes. Uh, and as time goes on, you know, I see those things uh, becoming more amorphous. You know, we're becoming more empathetic to things. We're listening more. Um, you know, at least I hope so it appears, you know, hence, you know, this podcast, you know, Sarah, thank you. Um, but uh, to me, uh, it, it's really hard to tell uh, what the difference is. But, you know, you kind of know it when you see it, um, when someone is allotted an opportunity that perhaps, you know, you're, you're unsure of, of why that wasn't you know, afforded to you. Um, that could be you know, a result of, you know, unfair uh, projections onto you, you know. So yeah. to me, it's just a matter of kind of staying on top of it and, and um, you know, calling in help uh, when you need it and, and building a culture where, where uh, folks can, can speak freely and, and, and transparently. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, you know, overlying with what you've talked about is awareness, right? Being aware, aware of workplace discrimination, maybe not knowing, obviously, everything about it but also being willing to ask for help and to go for help and to seek out help um, so that we can make our workplaces a place that is safe and that people do not walk in or do suffer from discrimination and things like that. Of course, it's going to happen, but I think there also needs to be processes in place that can you know, help make things better. Jennifer, what do you think? Um, I agree with you. Um, I think there definitely needs to be things in place to to counter discrimination. Um, thinking about what discrimination means to me, I would I would just kind of sum it up by saying it's any action or attitude um, that makes someone feel reluctant to stay in or join in an environment because of who they are. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of want to sit with that for a moment and ask the audience to kind of sit with that for a moment, just to, you know, take in what you said and how it feels to you, right? Because I think a lot of times, like DC had said from the very beginning, it's really about us individually and our perspectives and what workplace discrimination means to us and what we're talking about today might not be how somebody else looks at it. But if you sit with some of the things that we're talking about today and really take into account how it makes you feel and then process that into your own observation and um, what you you know, really think of workplace discrimination. So let's start sharing some personal experiences and stories because the only way that we can really move forward and really get a better understanding of, you know, what it looks like for certain individuals is by sharing those personal experiences and stories. So have any of you experienced workplace discrimination? When, why, and was the discrimination carried out by an individual or an organization as a whole? Who wants to start? go Sarah sure um I I actually and I'd like to go because I've never experienced blatant workplace discrimination so I, I think that it's important to outline that piece of it because I grew up in a fairly progressive city in a mixed neighborhood racially, socioeconomically. Um, I had a lot of good experiences, even in my career, um, being a young Black woman in tech. I did technology implementations um, when I transitioned into supply chain. And I, for years, you know, even being the only female in the room, being the only person of color in the room, I always had great experiences to where I never felt like I was less than. So I never experienced that blatant discrimination of 
this is obviously making me feel uncomfortable because of something that is not okay with some other person. But I have experienced a couple of microaggressions um, from from a project manager where (laughs) he... um, he wanted me to behave the way that he thought that I should behave. And because I didn't fall into line, we did have, you know, some, some interesting conversations. Uh, I think that anyone who knows me can imagine that I didn't cower or, you know, shy away from the conversation. Um, but this gentleman, uh, he, he didn't, we didn't see eye to eye on a particular, you know, situation. And I told him, you know, we obviously don't see eye to eye on the situation. So let's agree to disagree and move on with this conversation. And he told me that he needed me to say that I was sorry and then I wouldn't do it again. And I said, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> we're, we're not going to play this game of, you know, little black girl that has to answer to middle-aged white man the way that he wants to. That's not going to happen. Um, so so that was in, that was my first experience. Um, and then my second experience was, uh, I, I, never, I never said anything to anyone about that experience. Uh, the second experience was something that I felt was a little bit more a little bit more blatant, still a, a microaggression, but oh my goodness, you handled yourself so well in that meeting as if that was a big surprise. Right. Like, I, like I am, I am a manager at this company. Of course, I would know the answer because that is my role. Uh, and I think it's important to call that out because he was disguising his microaggression as a compliment. Right. As in, oh my goodness, you're so smart. Look at you. And when I brought that situation to, because he also cut me off like the entire day. And the only reason why I was able to answer the answer, give the answer to which he gave me a compliment was because his supervisor said, I asked DC for the answer. So yes allow DC to answer. <laughs> and and, and I was able to actually speak up. It makes all the difference. Yeah. So obviously that supervisor noticed, you know, what was happening during the day. So, you know, I brought it to his attention that, you know, I'm not really feeling this, this other, you know, colleague. And uh, unfortunately, you know, he told me, you know, we can move him to another project we don't want to move him to another project because then he's just going to be somebody else's problem. You know, I I want there to be some sort of conversation with this gentleman. And, you know, I I don't know what happened after that. I was told that I could be put with another manager, but this manager also had some unconscious bias that leadership knew about. And I, as a young black woman in this industry would have to determine what my tolerance level was. Wow. Um, You had to determine what your tolerance level was because there was nothing going to happen about that. Wow. Okay. Well, thank (laughs) you very much for sharing those stories. I mean, this is why we have to share, right? So I'll share a couple of mine. So I was told if I got pregnant, I wouldn't worry about a career. 
That was one thing that I was told. And so I don't know if this is microaggressions or maybe discrimination, and somebody can help me with this here because I don't really know what that definition is. But yes, I was also told that I was paid for my age because I started working really early. I started working right out of high school. And uh, yeah, I was told that I was going to get paid for my age and not my actual work ethic and experience of what I brought to the table. (laughs) Um, And then eventually later on in my career, I was told that they would not use the knowledge because I went to a lot of school. I did a lot of schooling by correspondence and really got to learn all sorts of aspects of the industry. And I was just told that they just would never use my knowledge um, at the company and I should probably go and find another job. So I, are those microaggressions or are those like discriminations? I don't know. What are those? That's a good question, right? I don't think any of us have the answer, but I did want to share that story to let you know that I've, I've been through a, a couple of, of um, instances as well. Who wants to share next? Miles. Sure. Um, so uh, before we jump into that, I'm curious uh, for DC and Sarah, um, were both of those um, within like the supply chain industry or, or related yes. or were they? Okay. Yes, gotcha. right. they were, they were both in supply chain. Um, one of them and, and to, to be fair, the, the guy that um, wanted me to apologize to him so that we could move on with our, um, with our working relationship, uh, he did not last long um, in the company. So it, it wasn't something that was individual uh, just between, you know, him and myself. So that was great to be, you know, in that space. And I know, Miles, you're, you know, tech startup. It is very different from my experience in the technology space. And I know that other women, there are studies that have been done that that might not be the case in the technology industry. They still get a lot of, um, they still get a lot of discrimination as women, especially at, on the developer side, the, the, um, the actual software engineer side. I, again, luckily did not go through that. Every situation to where I have been on the technology side has been very pleasant um, on the manufacturing side and warehousing and distribution. And I'm going to call out these industries because I've also spoken with other young women and it is still very archaic. Mm-hmm. Um, and any, I, I will debate anyone about that. I will have conversations all day about that. If one individual says, well, not at my company, we're talking about the industry as a whole, there is still a lot of work to be done um, in manufacturing and warehousing and distribution. Yeah. And one thing I'll say before, Miles, you, you jump in here is that we need more female engineers in the tech space. I know a lot of companies are looking to hire them. So if you're thinking, if you're in the audience and you're thinking about a career or you want to transition your career or you're in this space, especially in supply chain, we are looking for individuals like you. But also our stories, I think, aren't necessarily specific to supply chain, except for what DC was talking about in manufacturing. I think you can find it in all industries um, sometimes as well. Sorry, Miles, go ahead. Yeah, that's a great point, right? And and I think that um, it doesn't really matter what industry you're in. You know, there's going to be a certain level of, of discrimination that you're going to probably bump up and, and and run into. You know, in in the case of you know Silicon Valley culture, right? I think we've seen um, you know some of these uh, some of the bad press. You know, that's come out of Google and and um, some of these crazy stories uh, we hear about managers um, sort of gaming the system uh, a little bit. You know, from a corporate perspective. 
And, and that kind of uh, ties into my experience. Um, uh, the, you know, the company I was working for, the startup, uh, had gotten acquired. Um, and after we got, got acquired, you know, uh, I, I had been, you know, an early stage, you know, uh, employee, uh, was represented, you know, uh, through, the, uh, through the acquisition um, to, to some extent, not as, you know, probably not as, as well as I, I would have wanted it to be. Um, you know, looking back, but um, what ended up happening for me was that um, a, a more, you know, senior employee, white Latin, you know, had been um, with the organization for forever, it, it seemed like and felt like um, this individual was um, sort of a, almost a, a legend and, you know, in, in the terminal world, um, you know, specifically, you know, starting out his, his career in in Latin America. And, and um, you know, so uh, there was certainly, I think over time, you know, a sense of, hey, this is how it's been done, you know, for a long time. But I, I think with that, you know, comes a lot of stereotypes. Um, and I think when you're working in, in, in larger regions too, you know, you kind of learn, you know, how different cultures in different regions, you know, uh, perceive a certain things. So maybe, you know, you, you kind of come numb to it, you know, maybe, maybe to an extent. Um, but what ended up happening for me was that, you know, I'd come to find out only about 60 days into this new role. I thought everything was going great. I thought everything was, was going smooth. Um, you know, a new, a new, um, you know, uh, head of sales kind of came in above me, um, you know, and that was fine. You know, I can, I can, you know, take a seat, you know, take a step back. Um, but uh, come to find out 60 days in that um, this, this, this individual didn't like me. Uh, right. And I'm like, mm. like, why, why didn't they like me? Right. We, we have never, everyone likes me. Right. And after 60 <laughs> days, that's not long enough to not like somebody. I'm sorry. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Like, you know, and this is a, a larger organization, um, you know, a, a proper, um, you know, fully baked HR culture, you know, head of HR, you know, at the C level and, and they're doing a lot of great things. Um, but, you know, uh, since this individual had been there for such a long time, you know, they kind of were able, they, they actually knew the policies of HR. Um, and, and I felt like, you know, they were able to to game it, uh, you know, to an extent where I was put on a, uh, like a PIP plan. I was put on a performance improvement plan um, for, oh. for very faulty reasons, right? And, and I was like, okay, first off, you know, and, and I started documenting everything. I just like shooting emails to HR. I was like, hey, this is weird. This is weird. This is weird. And despite me, you know, sending all these things, you know, I was the one that actually ended up still getting put on this, this PIP plan. Wow. Um, so, you know, so I think, I think this is, this is apparent in, in many companies, you know, where the policies around HR and, and I'd love to hear, you know, from you guys too, um, you know, um, the policies in HR are just kind of, you know, forced to an extent, you know, they're not doing what they're uh, intended to do. Um, you know, a performance improvement plan, yes, you know, it could help someone get better, but, you know, perhaps, you know, they just want a good reason to fire you, right? Um, right. And, and they need to be able to document it. Um, and so I felt like I, I felt it fell into one of those traps where, you know, uh, there was no reason for this individual not to like me. Yes, we had competed a little bit before, you know, before it, it had gotten acquired. Um, but but my CEO had, you know, of uh, the startup had told me that, hey, you know, just, you know, this, this, this guy said he didn't like you, whatever. And then I got put on this PIP plan. Um, you know, and I felt like I was inadequately represented or heard of. And, and one of the big things with HR, too, um, is that, you know, you have to name your accuser, right? You have to mm. talk in an open environment directly, which I think is a good idea in theory. But I think at, at many other organizations, uh, it doesn't function that way where, you know, maybe, maybe I'm too uncomfortable. Maybe I don't want to, you know, to talk to this person individually. And, and maybe, you know, uh, HR should 
be able to handle this in a better way. Um, yeah. So that was kind of a little bit of my experience, but I'm curious if you guys have, have seen or heard anything like that from, from these proper, you know, HR, uh, large, larger HR organizations, if you will. Yeah. And before we get to that, I have one quick question for you. Fundraising. You're fundraising, right? You're a tech yeah. startup, you're fundraising. Have you had any discrimination? Because I know I did when I was fundraising. Yeah, I think that's a tough one, right? I think, <laughs> I think, I think, you know, you can't, you can't really, there was nothing overt, right? It wasn't anyone saying, hey, you know, I'm not funding you because I don't think you're going to succeed. But, you know, when I would compare, you know, um, what we had been able to accomplish, right? And, and of course, I'm biased, right? As, as a startup to, to maybe, you know, competitor or indirect competitor, I'm looking at, you know, them, I'm like, well, you know, we've been working closer with customers, we've been, you know, um, working on this for, for quite a long time. And then, you know, they make a huge announcement. They've raised a ton of funding, um, you know, but they don't have the same traction that you have, right? A lot of folks uh, raise, um, and they tend to be white, at least from my experience, um, you know, they raise on nothing, right? They raise on, on, on a, you know, great story, you know, a great narrative, a memo, right? You see a lot of those uh, out of venture capitalists. Um, you know, they're able to raise capital and they're able to find folks that can, you know, say, OK, how many how many million do you need? And, and their Series A comes out, you know, five, yeah. you know, three, four five million, you know, plus, you know, with nothing uh, versus, you know, in, in, in our case, I would say I probably pitched close to 200 times, you know, heard no 95 percent of the time. Uh, and then at some point you do question, OK, like, what know, is it? Is, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, is, is it really, you know, you know, you, you, you doubt my traction or, you know, but. You know, this other company here, though, that's vetted by, you know, all these top tier uh, venture capitalists, you know, they're able to raise money, you know, no problem. You know, so I know part of that is, you know, ties to the, um, the entrepreneur themselves and, and their prowess at, at fundraising, um, maybe one of their strong suites. But I think, you know, to an extent, there definitely is, you know, um, some um, discrimination. You know, yeah, some discrimination that's mm-hmm. happening structurally. Right. And a lot of it is because, you know, a lot of these venture capitalists are also coming from, you know, uh, you know, a generational wealth, right, a, a culture that's that's ultra connected. Um, you know, to them where they have it in their Rolodex because, you know, their father knows everyone, right? Or, or um, you know, their father can fund the company or something along mm-hmm. those lines, you know? So so those yeah. are just um, some of the ways where, you know, it can get it can get a little dicey, I suppose, you know, in the thank, fundraising world. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for answering that question. <laughs> I wonder how much of that is unconscious bias because we, we mentioned that mm-hmm. earlier, conscious versus unconscious. And Miles, you were talking about how, as humans, we just naturally gravitate toward the same. We want to, we feel more comfortable with the same. So it might not necessarily be that overt discrimination of, I don't want to give my money to this Indian guy as much as, oh, this young white guy, I can see myself in him. I was him 20 years ago. I follow the narrative and that unconscious going toward the same then he gets the funding as opposed to this otherness that, you know, Miles has. So how much of it is, you know, unconscious versus conscious and then people um, not being aware of it? Because we also talked about awareness Um, as a leader, you know, Miles, I personally, I don't know if you feel the same. um, I very often find myself doing a self-reflection and even having a sanity check with my leadership team Am I not hiring this person or not putting this person on this project because of a valid reason related to experience or value? Or is it because this person is so different from me? And, you know, checking myself at the door and 
being very aware of that, because if you're not, it's very easy to go into the unconscious bias. It's very easy for me to hire all other women because it's the it's comfortable. And if we don't push those boundaries, it's easy to fall into the unconscious bias piece of it. And to justify that, to say, I'm not racist, you know, I'm not, I don't have anything against this person, but also do you, and you just don't, you're not really thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting conversation because we did an episode on ageism back in December and, you know, that's part of dis- workplace discrimination as well is when you've got somebody a little bit older with experience, you know, some of the questions around that as well. Brittany, you came off mute. I know you have a lot to share. Yes. <laughs> and so share with us, please. So I actually wanted to kind of um, springboard off something that Miles said um, that I think also ties into what we were talking about when it comes to awareness and unconscious bias when it comes to HR, because I do think that a lot of what you said is so spot on in that HR are human beings as well. And so as much as they are going to try to do their best to educate themselves, they also have their own unconscious biases that they need to be able to identify and acknowledge in themselves in order to combat things. And also, I think a large part of what HR needs and what I think in the last few years has definitely been happening is to seek out tools and to look for education on certain things. Um, Because they're like, I first learned about microaggressions from my own sister. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I'm white passing, but she is not. And so she has dealt with microaggressions basically since childhood in school through her professional life, I had no idea what they were. And there are so many people because they don't experience them necessarily don't know what they are. So if someone goes to an HR person and says, hey, I experienced this, because it's not overt racism, they might not understand the actual implications. And I'm one of those people who says, if someone says they've experienced racism, or bias, they've experienced racism or bias. They they know what that feels like. They they know what it looks like more than anyone else can. So I do feel like that's something that it it just needs to be kind of made aware when it comes to HR. And I do think to Miles's point too, where when you have some sort of workplace discrimination and your impulse is to go to HR, it's not always comfortable to identify the person who has done this to you because you are you become very vulnerable and i think a lot of people worry about retaliation is the person going to find out that it was me who spoke up what is the rest of my team going to say if they find this out there are a lot of worries about how it makes you look and people saying oh well it's really not as bad as you were saying lighten up there's just a lot of that, that I think people internalize when it comes to reporting discrimination within the workplace. That's an amazing point, right? The people that you're going to, to be able to help you with what's happening in your world, whether it's discrimination or microaggressions or what we're talking about today, if they can't relate or, you know, the struggle with, will they believe me? 
Will they dismiss it? I mean, there's so much tied into taking one step after another towards that office and then actually stepping into that office and sharing what has happened. There's so much behind that. And there's so much bravery behind that, that I think we need to identify that in this conversation today about how much effort and how much emotion that person has gone through just to even pick up the phone, step into that office, share their story. And so the people on the other side really need to be able to, maybe they can't relate, but need to be able to relate on a level that that person is going to feel safe. And so I think, you know, coming out of this conversation, if we can bring that awareness to a lot of people in leadership, C-suite, HR, um, I think we'll be able to make, you know, at least awareness a part of that impact. Jennifer, you are nodding your head. I, I share with us what do you what do you think about this conversation? You're on mute. Um, so I definitely think that it is a challenge to know what the difference between something like a microaggression and discrimination, because I think a lot of us probably do experience discrimination that's just not blatant. And so um, I think that's why we go back to the beginning of the conversation where we talked about being sort of proactive about making our communities and our workplaces inclusive and, and making sure that people know they're free to be who they are when they're around us. So Mm -hmm. I think that's really um, an important step to not just, you know, um, say you don't discriminate, but actively work to to let people know that that's not the culture you're building. You're building yeah. a culture of inclusivity and kindness and a place where people are comfortable to be themselves. And zero tolerance for the behavior. I mean, I think that's a big part of what we're talking about today too, is that we're seeing way too much tolerance for this. And that's part of the challenge that we're seeing. Jennifer and Brittany, before we go on, I just want to see if you guys have any personal experiences or maybe you've seen discrimination from afar that you want to share. Jennifer? Sure. Um, I can definitely remember a time early in my career. I was literally just out of college and an older male um, supervisor um, sat me down and basically said like, hey, you're young and you don't know as much as me. So you just need to shut up when we're in meetings and let (gasps) me do the talking. Um, I did not stay at that organization for very long. Actually, that the same supervisor um, fired me because I would not shut up during meetings. So um, that was fun. (laughs) Um, I am also a manager director level person. Um, So a lot of times people outside of our organization will direct um, decision-making or conversations at my male colleagues who sometimes I might be their supervisor or at the same level as them, but they just automatically go to the male person in the room when they're asking for input. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I don't know if this is, I'm sure this is not specific to the indigenous community, um, but I am from, I grew up in an urban area in Oklahoma. So not really close to my tribal headquarters like I am now. And um, there have been times where I have been told, because I'm also white passing, um, um, 
that I'm not indigenous enough to be a part of a conversation or take part in a cultural activity um, and things like that. Yeah, I I cry every episode. I'm just about to cry again. Um, Well, sorry, I didn't mean to make you cry. No, 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 no. Please don't apologize. Please don't apologize. This is why we share this. It's so important that we're sharing these stories because at the end of the day, that's somebody telling you how you identify. And that is not okay. Whether we're in the workplace, we're having a conversation with an individual, personally, we need to stop thinking that it's okay that we're telling somebody how they feel, how they look, how whatever it is, we need to stop this. Like, that's just completely crazy to me. Completely, completely crazy that somebody thinks that they have the right to tell somebody else how they how they should feel or or how they identify because of how I'm perceiving that they look. I mean, that anyways, Brittany, do you have a story? Thank you for sharing that, Jennifer. Jennifer, I can so relate to that um, because I've certainly been in those shoes, not necessarily at work, but being white passing, that has my Black Caribbean roots are very important to me. I grew up predominantly celebrating my Jamaican heritage because that's what my immediate family is and always having kind of that called into question or um, feeling self-conscious about be celebrating that part of myself because people perceive me in a particular way. But when it comes to the workplace, I, I have been fortunate in that I've never really experienced any blatant discrimination directed at me. Um, I've been very lucky in that most of my jobs have been sort of female led companies. So there are always a lot of women in the room that I can look up to. Um, And so in that way, yes, I've had a few instances where definitely in a like meeting room, the, if there's a man in the room, mansplaining happens, um, or something of that sort, but nothing blatant or, 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 or overtly, um, discriminatory. But when I have witnessed it, and I think the one time that it really, really got to me was that I remember that this individual was brought in for an interview um, at a company that I worked at and the individual was disabled, but they were such an impressive candidate for the role. Everyone was impressed by their interview, by their credentials, everything. And when we went to set up the follow-up interviews, one person said, no, I'm not interested in a follow-up with them. And they couldn't give a reason why, but the subtext of what they were saying was, I don't like the way that person looks. I don't want that that person representing our company. And it was so alarming to me because I think it was really the first time that I experienced discrimination that probably is can't be classified as blatant because they never said it outright but everyone else in the room knew why mm-hmm. and that was it was and the person wasn't in the room um they'd left after their interviews they'd gone really well and it was just a case of 
wow, to witness someone being attacked in that way and just because of their identity was so startling to me. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. One of the, that actually reminds me of a conversation that I had on our Woman in Supply Chain series. And so I want to ask you guys, and Miles, I don't know if you can weigh in here, but I want to ask about woman to woman discrimination. So an episode, I had Michelle Livingstone from Home Depot on my Woman in Supply Chain series. And she actually said on that particular episode that because of her bias, she actually didn't do enough to empower other women to come up through the ranks. And she wished that she had done more. So my question to the ladies on the panel is how much do we see from women to women discrimination? And have you experienced that? Because I have definitely experienced that, um, not particularly in a workplace, but in you know, a work environment where I've owned my own company and they've owned their own company and that kind of thing. And so have you experienced that? And how do we get through this so that we empower each other? DC. I actually haven't experienced um, any woman to woman discrimination. I would like to think I also have not been a perpetrator in women to woman discrimination. So, you know, being, being honest there and and being um, upfront about that, I hope I haven't been on the sending in versus the receiving in. I have, however, um, I have several colleagues and friends who have, and they found themselves, you know, of course, shocked having to create their own table because they couldn't get a seat at the table with other women because they didn't have the right experience or there's just no more room, you know, no new friends. Um, And it's, it's not just, you know, their individual anecdotal experiences. Um, obviously, we're having a conversation right now. You just ask the question because it happens. It does, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so it is something to be aware of. Um, I actually know a woman who, you know, who admitted to bullying another woman because she felt like there was room enough for one, you know, and so this yeah. other person couldn't come in and take her spot. Um, for for lack of a better term, because there was enough room at the table for one woman amongst this, you know, this this group of men. Now, I will say that my very strong desire to lift up and work with other women, I do, however, find myself on the other side, again, just always sanity checking myself. Am I not giving this man a chance because I'm waiting for a good woman. Or I would, even though this guy is so much more qualified and would be better at the role, am I leaning toward this woman simply because she is a woman? So mm-hmm. I, I, I always try to remember, and I also check my friends when this happens, is that while we are the minorities and we can absolutely be, um, you know, victims of discrimination, we also have to check ourselves where we're not going the other way and discriminating against someone else because of our perceived bias of what I think this person is thinking about me. (laughs) So, you know, then I'm just as wrong because I'm going to behave in a way to, to counter what I think this other person is doing when this other person might not be thinking that at all. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's a two-way street. 
And thank you for sharing that because I think, you know, with a lot of the conversations that we're having, we are, we are talking about male managers and things like that. But I think we also have to address, like you're saying, is when we're hiring that we're thinking about it from from all different perspectives, right? Because otherwise we have bias, <laughs> regardless of what we're talking about based on experiences and things like that. And so if you're checking yourself, like DC is talking about, that's a really great way of making sure that you're not going to be part of the challenges that people are having, right? Um, Jennifer or Brittany, women to women dis discrimination. Have you experienced it? Have you seen it? How do we get past it? <laughs> Um, I, I've definitely seen it. And I think that oftentimes it gets passed off as competitiveness. Like mm. we just, we call it that, but it's really, it's not, it's, it's harmful because then I think from the outside, other people feel like, well, there's only room for one woman at the table, you know, to Dicey's point. So um, I, I have definitely seen it. I have unfortunately probably participated in it as well. Um, I, I think that there are cultures where it's really easy to become territorial about, um, the space you take up because you do feel like there's only room for one person at the table. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't know how, I mean, that's a great question. I, I definitely am not an expert on this and I am not sure I would even know where to start, mm -hmm. um, in addressing that other than to um, recognize that it's common and um, and have those conversations with people you trust about, yeah. am I doing this because of this or am I making this decision based on a bias that I have? Yeah, absolutely. And it comes down to awareness, right? It comes down to checking yourself like DC was talking about. You know, what are you saying about another woman publicly? You know, if you're both CEOs and you're talking about that woman, what are you saying? You know, are you speaking highly of them? Are you empowering them or are you tearing them down? I mean, that's discrimination as well um, in the workplace because you're within an industry. Brittany. Yeah, I can never, I, I've never experienced the woman to woman discrimination, but I will say, I do think that it, it does, people do couch it as being competitive. And I do think that a lot of it has to do with this internalized sort of diversity quota that people constantly bring up that like, oh, well, we need to have one person of color in the room. We need to have one woman in the room so that we're, we are considered diverse. And so it's that internalizing that, um, that I think can be really harmful to any group. Um, but I think with women in sort of the professional setting for so long, it was the, you were the exception to the rule if you were a woman in the boardroom. And mm -hmm. so I think that's continued to be perpetuated in those instances of that woman to woman discrimination. Yeah, and I've seen it in a lot of different ways too, right? Associations, lists, awards, like pitting women against each other in a public battle to win something. Like, can we just stop that? Because that's not helping anything, I don't think. I mean, there's healthy competition, but then there's really like putting people together to, to you know, scramble on a popularity contest to try to win an award. I mean, that to me... 
is is not really helping the situation. And so I just want to say that on this episode that I think we should get rid of that. <laughs> um, DC, you're off mute. Yeah, I, I think that a good way, because it, it if we're if we're saying, and this comes from kind of my like the five whys and you know, like even what we do when we're trying to figure out what are the symptoms or what's the real cause underlying for like the business processes. If we if we figure out the root cause of what this discrimination is, the competitiveness, et cetera, it it sounds like to me it stems from representation. So if I, as a woman, look and I see that there is one or two other women in this, you know, senior role or at the table, then I'm going to think, okay, this spot is taken. However, if I see representation of many women, then that competitiveness isn't there anymore because I now know that, okay, there are plenty of seats. There are plenty of opportunities. So whether it goes to me or whether it goes to her or whether it goes to both of us, there is room for both of us. But when we don't have that representation, that's when you become territorial and you think, oh, I have to protect what I have because then where else can you get it from? Um, so I, and I, I say that, you know, kind of from personal experience and thinking about why I perhaps haven't been the victim of women-to-women discrimination, also why I haven't felt the need to discriminate. And that's because I've been in environments to where I see, oh, there are several women in leadership roles here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's room for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've been at companies, I've done work for companies that, you know, especially I think because we've done, I've done so much work in retail, there are always tons of women in retail and fashion. Um, so I, I think that the the representation and see if you can see it, you can believe it, you know, kind of thing is is very helpful also. Miles, I'm going to bring you into this conversation. I know that you're not a woman. I mean, obviously, <laughs> but what do you have to share in this conversation? Because I'm sure you've worked with a lot of women. You know, you might have seen some discrimination. Um, what are your thoughts from your perspective? Yeah, so I, I thank, thank you for allowing the opportunity to, to contribute. Um, I think what needs to happen from a cultural perspective, too, and I think you're starting to see it a little bit, you know, maybe with the diversity and inclusion initiatives, it's, it's, it's you know, it's getting there. We're having conversations, right? I think we're switching from, or it certainly feels like we're switching from, you know, unconscious bias to conscious bias when people start speaking out, you know, communicating, talking about how they're feeling. Uh, so I feel like, you know, at least I'm hopeful that there's a shift, at least when it comes to, you know, uh, tech culture, at least, you know, anecdotally from, from where I sit in the supply chain. Of course, you know, a big part of it is what the founders uh, institute. And, and um, you know, a lot of it is just kind of basic, right? Um, I think one of the things that um, a lot of startups don't do uh, is, is a lot of, um, you know, blind applications, right? Objectively, you should pick the best person for that role. Whereas, you know, that unconscious bias starts acting up the second you see, you know, that name, that first name, right? Um, where, are they, where are they from? Where are they located? How old are they, right? Everything that traditionally you're taught to kind of put on the resume. Um, so I think there are steps that you can take, um, you know, as well uh, to kind of help drive the, um, you know, your, your employee base, I suppose, you know, more commensurate with, you know, the U.S. population where uh, you ought to also be not, not only kind of building that awareness, but you should also be building connections uh, with these other associations, you know, that can help you and that can source candidates for you. Because a lot of the times it's easier, right, to source a male candidate for a role, 
you know, where you didn't know that you have a women in supply chain group that, you know, you probably should have hit them up and they probably could have also, you know, gave you, you know, 20, 30, you know, however many applications or, or you know, support you in those endeavors as well, um, where you can start, you know, building a, a truly organic culture um, that it is diverse and inclusive, right? E- easier said than, than done. Um, but I think that um, there are some smaller steps that you can start taking. Um, and the earlier, the better uh, is another thing that I've learned, um, you know, too, as soon as you can start instituting, you know, these blind applications, uh, and I know that's very hard because you generally, you know, say, hey, you know, you ask your friends, right, who who should, you know, who should I hire for this job? You know, majority of them are going to probably, you know, suggest guys, you know, unless you have that network built out um, to at least source and, and have, you know, uh, I guess, you know, um, more more leads, if you will, uh, for those hires that are representative of the diversity that you want to have uh, yeah. as well. Yeah, well, and that's a good segue because now I want to talk about action items like DC talks about on her show, the tangible takeaways, the things that we can do to stop workplace discrimination. One of the things that Miles said is blind applications. I think the other thing for me is really creating safe spaces. And so if you're a company that says that you don't have workplace discrimination, well, what have you done to really determine that? And it doesn't mean that you're C-suite and your leadership is sitting down with people and having discussions because that generally doesn't work, (laughs) right? They want you to name people and people don't want to talk to you necessarily about what is happening in the workplace. So I think for one of the the biggest things for me is, is what Miles was talking about earlier is hiring somebody from the outside to come in and conduct and have these conversations and create these safe spaces so people do feel like they can contribute. But one thing that I will say to leadership is do not force people to name names because that doesn't help at all. It might help you because you're trying to figure out who it is, but it really doesn't help the other person that wants to share authentically. So let's um, get together and talk about kind of, you know, all of all of those things and what we can do next. So how do we create safe spaces? That's my perspective. That's how I think organizations should do it. But again, I don't have all the answers, um, you know, and I don't proclaim to have all the answers. And so that's why we have these discussions to share perspectives. Brittany, how do you think that we can create safe spaces? How can organizations really, you know, start nipping discrimination in the bud? I mean, I am always a big advocate for education when it comes to these, when it comes to any sort of discrimination, especially within the workplace, because as we've been talking, some of it is very difficult to identify, but I think it's, not only educating HR, but also educating the members of your team. And I don't mean those like those HR videos that look like they're 1980s driver's <laughs> ed course videos, which everyone just rolls their eyes at, doesn't take seriously. I mean, actually having like workshops with people who you I'm glad you qualified that, Brittany, because when you said education, I was thinking about the 90s yes. style videos <laughs> no, that I like no. fast forward through because it's literally just a box that you make people check when they get started. But what do you actually do with it? Yeah. So excuse the interruption, no, continue. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I'm talking about is actually bringing in experts, people who can lead workshops and who can 
really make people start to think in a way that allows them to empathize and also humanizes people who are different from them. I think one of the most interesting exercises um, that I helped lead was this privilege for sale exercise that I did for Black History Month last year, where I gave, I broke a bunch of people into groups and gave them a certain amount of money. And there was a list of different privileges that Black individuals may have or might not have. And if you had $5, you were able to buy five of those privileges. But if you were had $10, you could buy $10, you could buy 10 of them. And people having to actually sit down and think about what was important to them, like being able to get that job or not, or like having their, being able to find their makeup for their skin tone at like a Sephora, though it was really interesting to actually have people sit down and try to figure out what was most important to them and actually start to think about what other people have to deal with on a regular basis that Mm. they might not have otherwise. So I do feel like it's about engaging people in a way that doesn't feel like just checking a box and it's engaging people on every single level of an organization from the entry-level positions to the C-suite and the executives, the HR people, it it really is needs to be holistic, holistic if it's going to have any impact on the atmosphere, the environment in which people are working. Amazing, amazing advice. So I actually wrote down role-playing before you started talking about role-playing and how important that is. One of the other things that came up for me is diverse suppliers. If you're going to go outside of the organization and have people come in to talk about these things and do training and role-playing, look at diverse suppliers. We want to have people involved and people coming into the organization from a variety of different perspectives. Otherwise, it's really, you know, I, I think it's limited in the change that it can make. Do you see? I also like the idea of having someone come in um, because there, even if it's that unconscious bias, there's always that bias of, oh, here's, you know, whoever in HR doing yeah. another, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. <laughs> and it kind of falls flat. But when someone else comes in, I, I think that number one, that's their expertise. I'm very much a fan of not trying to do things just because you can. Like, do you have the skill set in-house? Sure. Should you use your in-house resources for, you know, other things? Is there value to having an outside, whether it's a diverse supplier, whether it's that? Because these planning all things, things can be very time consuming, Mm-hmm. So if it's just a matter of resource capacity, um, and especially, you know, we think about, I think these conversations, whenever I hear about programs and DEI initiatives, et cetera, it's all very much, you know, we talked about Google and we talked about, you know, press, like these are big brands, but these types of situations also happen at small companies mm-hmm. where the HR departments, you know, is not, they're not so built out and HR is more so of, Hey, did you get your benefits plan? And, you know, if there's some blatant, 
you know, form of discrimination or harassment, then HR might step in. Um, but when it comes to, you know, smaller, more nimble teams, I learned very, like, I was not expecting once I got to a team of five to have to think about someone reporting another person and not wanting to because this person was technically a director title. So, you know, I had someone tell me after, you know, uh, this person exited the company of, I never brought this up because they were a director. And, you know, I thought that you would believe them before you believed me. Right. So, you know, I then as a leader had to say, okay, that's that's not okay. What do I need to do proactively when people start to make sure they know? Like, is it is it in a handbook? Is it you know? Let's get creative. You know, is it an onboarding session? Like, what is it to where people need to know you don't have to name your accuser? You know what I mean? If there's just something that you want to bring up but you don't feel comfortable, especially when it's a small team, yeah. Even if you don't name your accuser people are hesitant because if I'm telling you about a situation, the likelihood that you know who the person is, is very high. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's almost even more important to not have a a lot of details be shared. And like you said, Sarah, yeah, it's easier for me to then single that person out, but what is the good to the entire company? Well, at that point, you know, is it programming? Is it education? You have to think about other ways to make everyone feel safe. That is not, oh, well, let's sit down together and, you know, have a basically a face off and I'll mediate. You know, there there are other ways to do it. And it's face off. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, but it's so true. Right. Who's right? And then like, exactly. I'm the judge and the jury and like, it's, it's, it's weird, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I actually, I talked to the founder of a startup a couple of weeks ago and their approach is uh, uh, attacking these t- sorts of issues through mentorship based programs. And um, they use this really nice technology platform and they have the, these different, um, in addition to the technology platform that companies buy into, you also buy their resources for coaching and training and topics of conversations that not is not necessarily role-playing, but a mentor and a mentee should be discussing. And those types of conversations are top, you know, those types of topics are conversations for the small, um, you know, pairs to discuss. And I really like that because it's a safe space. You know, it's not this big group. Um, You're you're developing this trust with this one other person. So um, I I think that as we start to see more of that, and whether it's outsourced or whether it's in-house, you know, but these not 1980s, 90s videos and, and real genuine conversations. And at the end of the day, a lot of it is trust based you know yeah. i could because because even as as a minority um as a woman as now a mom there are always these things in the there could always be these perceptions in the back of my mind of is this person treating me this way because they're just generally an a hole are they treating everyone this way or is it because mm-hmm. my kid is in the video 
Or is it because, you know, I'm a woman or is it because I'm an ethnic minority? And some people are just a-holes. They just treat everybody that way. But the difference between me reporting to HR that this person is rude versus this person is discriminating against me is also company culture, because do I think that it's acceptable for him to be discriminatory? Um, or is it, you know, trust? Because I could trust that this person, you know, is not racist. I could trust that this person does not have an unconscious bias mm-hmm. and that they're just, you know, rude. And then maybe in that point, I even feel comfortable saying, you're being mean. You're being mean to me and you're being mean to everybody. So if you're having a bad day, go have a bad day. Um, But it's the difference between me feeling like this person is mean to everyone versus this person is harassing me or it's a microaggression because there is or is not that level of trust and there is or is not that zero tolerance. That's true zero tolerance, you know, at the company itself. Such amazing advice. And it came up, it came up with a couple of, of things for me, um, that face off, like I remember having way too many face off face offs with That's like so people, weird to me. people that were above me. And afterwards HR was like, Oh, you handled that so well. Like it was a surprise. And I'm like, thanks. Because they know yeah. it's an uncomfortable situation. I know. It shouldn't so, have happened. I don't know. That's first I, I never heard of this name your accuser thing until <laughs> Miles mentioned it earlier. Because as, as a leader, like the first thing that I did, I had someone come in. She's part-time. She, like she's an HR manager. She's HR by education. She's HR. That's what she did at other companies. So she is like a true HR professional, not a friend, you know, that I just needed to fill a space, which happens in startup world. You just need, a, you know, someone who can come in and get the work done. But I mean, I specifically hired her because I wanted people to feel like they could go to this outside third party who's not involved in client delivery, um, who's not involved in projects and that they could share confidentially without naming names, you know, whatever they're feeling. And then HR could share that information with me as the leader. And then we could work together to decide how to go about it. Mm -hmm. And that was just like, what seemed to be the right thing to me, just from my gut, I feel like it's common sense to not put like, and it should be like, you know, I, it just, that just seems weird to me. Yeah, like, it should <laughs> be. And that's, you know, that's mindful leadership. And I think we need to evolve into mindful leadership rather than what we've, you know, typically been accustomed to. I think the other thing that came up for me is that, the next generation is really looking for that safe space to land and to be able to spend the majority of their their lives, right? Because we spend so much time on our careers. And so that's something to think about when you're looking to hire is that the next generation is really looking for that. And so you really need to be able to create that culturally. And I think the other thing that we really you really touched on, DC, is that we've got work to do on both sides. Right. I think that there's work to do from a, an organization leadership standpoint, but I think there's also work to do on the individual's part to be able to um, communicate and be able to talk about it. Um, so safe spaces are crucial to that, but also giving yourself the grace to be able to talk about it. Miles, what do you think? What, what are our next steps? What do we got to do? My, my ears are, are ringing, you know, um, hearing all the points that you just mentioned, um, you know, uh, after DC's explanation. And, and, and to me, you know, with my experience with HR and, and just hearing not, not just me, but other individuals, significant others, you know, family members, um, 
you know, it, it, HR is usually treated as an extension of, of, of legal, of legal department, right? They need to cover themselves to make sure that they're not going to get sued, right? And that, you know, uh, and, and, and large corporations, it generally tends to be skewed, you know, towards that direction that, hey, watch the video, check off the box illegally, you know, you can't sue us for X, Y, and Z now, right? And, and, and so resolution to me just never seemed like the authentic goal, of that HR department, whereas now it seems like it is because, you know, we, we can question, you know, these startups, you know, uh, just as we become more aware, we can challenge HR a little bit, um, you know, and call them out on, on really basic things like, okay, like you want me to explain, you know, how was sexually harassed by this, you know, individual, you know, face to face and they're going to dispute it and it's going to get really ugly and it's going to be, you know, he said, you know, she said, she said, she said, he said, he said, whatever it might be. Um, you know, and, and you're just worried the entire time. It's usually not a good experience for anyone. Um, you know, you're worried if you're, if you're going to win or not. Am I going to get fired, right? You know, what's the outcome of this PIP? What's my future look like? You know, how am I going to support my family? And I feel like uh, often, um, you know, HR kind of was going down that wrong path. But but hopefully um, with folks like yourselves and, and, you know, this newer movement towards becoming more aware, uh, you can kind of institute almost like basic things like like dc said you know an objective third party right mentorship a safe space um uh, where it's more of a function of culture than it is more of a function of a legal department yeah and rather than hr maybe a title of something around people right because hr i mean is, is human resources whereas what we're talking about is creating an environment for people a safe space for people Right, it's not about managing human capital and human resources and what we'll tolerate and what we won't tolerate. It's about creating an environment that's inclusive um, and uh, for for all of your people. Jennifer, yeah, I, I agree that it's definitely about creating that environment that's inclusive for all people. But I think it's also um, incumbent on each of us to not allow space for discrimination, to call it out when we see it, to say, hey, there's no room for that attitude here around me. And and I, I think part of it is education, like others have mentioned, but just making it so that people feel really uncomfortable discriminating against other people yes. and they don't do it. Mm-hmm. What about speaking up when you see it? How do you do that? And how do you get the bravery to do it? Because it takes somebody a lot of guts to stand up and speak for somebody else if they're being discriminated. How do we do that? What does it look like? I think it's really easy um, to do on a one-on-one level, but so much harder to do in a group setting where you can go to a person who you've seen be discriminated against maybe after the fact and say, hey, I'm so sorry you were treated this way. I don't feel like there's any room for that kind of behavior in our department or our organization, but it is so much harder, especially if it's, you know, someone above you who's doing the discriminating or if it's part of the culture of the organization. Um, I think that, I think that presents a very, um, very unique challenge. Mm-hmm. Anybody else on yeah. how you stand up for others? I, I would say that generally the more most successful kind of reactions to discrimination in the workplace that I've at least witnessed has been when another coworker has stepped in because they recognize that there was something making someone really uncomfortable and tried to diffuse the situation. And 
I would just say that I think being able to speak up one-to-one with someone is easy in certain situations, but if that person is higher level in the company than you, or if you're younger than them, there are these kind of difficulties with trying to correct them. And a lot of the times, I think part of it is really just making sure that you've diffused the situation enough to make sure no one else is being drawn in and witnessing this person who is having a very vulnerable moment. Make sure that the situation is kind of simmered down and then approaching the person who has been the subject of discrimination to check on them. Because again, I do think it's about being empathetic, letting that person know that they were recognized and heard and trying to let them have that safe space as we've been talking about to talk about their feelings if they so choose. If they say, no, I'm okay, I don't want to, that is their prerogative, but at least let them know that someone was there and wanted to help them because maybe a week from now they might say, you know, I actually do really want to talk about this. So for me, I think those have been the most successful instances of kind of stopping those situations when you do notice them. Well, and there's a fine line with calling somebody out, right? Because that could be perceived as discrimination as well. DC, do you have anything to add on this? I mean, you've been the recipient of somebody sort of standing up, right? Based on your your story of earlier. Um, and so how do we call somebody out gracefully so that it doesn't really cross the line? Um. I'm I'm not a good person to ask because I'm not one for grace. <laughs> when when it when it comes to like people just doing off the wall things that just should not be tolerated, I I am not one to be PC, you know, politically correct. I'm I'm not one to be graceful. I I will call you out because what you're doing is wrong and if you feel a way about it, then that's your problem because you were wrong. And you should feel a way about it. You should feel something that is not good because you were wrong. Um, and I'm okay calling people out. Um, so I'm, I'm not a good source. <laughs> no, 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 you are because we <laughs> to have give to advice have... of how to do it gracefully. Um, I mean, now, now I do, it, th- there is a fine line, um, and, and I deal with this not necessarily as it relates to discrimination, but as it relates to anything that I don't intend to tolerate at my company, um, especially as we're at a stage now to where business is going very well. So I'm I'm going into the role of not working in the business as much as working on the business which means that I need the people who are working in the business to know that these are our values. This is our culture. This is the way that we will do things around here. This is what will not be tolerated. So I actually am more recently finding myself, um, you know, trying to be diplomatic, choosing my words wisely, but in the context of we're all in a group setting right now. So I'm going to call this out. And this is not me singling out an individual. This is me recognizing that this is a teaching moment for us as a team. And this will not be tolerated. This is something that I'm not going to deal with. This is something that you should speak up about um, as someone else in the company. So I think that there is value in not waiting 
to have a one-on-one conversation, especially if a situation happened in a group setting so that, because everyone doesn't always know that, oh, well, that person got a, a slap on the wrist afterward, you know, or that person had a good talking to afterward. So they could perceive that that behavior is tolerated, mm-hmm. um, whereas maybe, maybe it's not. So appearances do matter. Um, that's that's my perspective. Um, no, I, think so- that's, I think that's great <laughs> because we need all sort of sides. And actually, in both of those scenarios, the second one, you're showing a ton of grace. So I think that you do, you know, you're able to lead mindfully and you're also able to lead with grace in you know, all sorts of situations. And part of that grace is maybe not, you know, swearing at somebody. Maybe that's the level of grace when you're calling it out. You know what I'm trying to say? So there's different levels of grace. And I think that, you know, there's also different perspectives on how you call somebody out and what that looks like. We need to share all sorts of perspectives because it's not all going to go like we're talking about today because we're all individuals with different perspectives. One of the other things that I wanted to bring up is that, you know, changing HR to sort of that people movement. Employee experience. Sorry? Employee experience. Employee experience. I I read, um, oh, I don't remember if it was an article or just like an infographic or something that I saw, but it was about how HR is becoming less of that legal, you know, CYA situation that Miles mentioned and the best companies that are going to attract and retain the best employees are making HR an employee experience department. So it includes all of these different, you know, initiatives. And basically, because, you know, we talked a lot in the beginning about, does this person feel comfortable at my company? Does everyone feel comfortable? Is everyone getting a good experience professionally, personally, you know, on different levels? And as companies move more, move HR toward that functional employee experience you know, business uh, department as opposed to, yeah, do, do are we covering all the labor laws correctly and yeah. checking the boxes so we can't get sued? Well, and words do matter, right? So I like employee experience. I like head of people. It also draws me to one of the episodes that we're going to have coming up later on in the year around the word inclusion, because it's inclusion versus acceptance. Inclusion means tolerance. Acceptance means love. And so words really do matter as to how we're thinking about, you know, creating these safe spaces and the words that we're using. So that leads me to the end of this discussion. And I want to know from each one of you, one thing that you would like the audience to walk away from this discussion, either thinking doing, you know, putting into action. What is the one thing that you would like them to walk away from this discussion with? Miles, I'm starting with you. Great. Um, Thank you, Sarah. Um, So I think for me, it kind of comes back to the topic that I mentioned a couple of times where, you know, and I think we all kind of mentioned it uh, in some form or another, it comes down to culture. Um, I I kind of, you know, look at uh, HR, um, I guess, traditionally, um, uh, similar to technical debt, right? Like when you're building a product, um, there's this concept of technical debt, where if you don't build it right, right, if you put things off, eventually, it's going to pile up, pile up, and you're gonna have to deal with it. And I think you've been seeing that now, where these larger organizations, you know, Google, for example, um, have really been trying hard to get their diversity and inclusion right, yet you know, all the press is bad, right? It's not working, right? And at some point, I think that if you don't get started early enough, it's really difficult and also very expensive to try to reverse that shift in culture. 
um, you know, within your organization to create that safe space. So, uh, you know, my, my takeaway would be, you know, for, for these younger organizations and for these startups and, you know, kind of similarly from my seat, the sooner that you can institute, you know, these, um, these policies, right, uh, blind applications, the, the more that you are, you know, uh, vocal about, hey, we don't have, you know, maybe, maybe we don't have an HR department, we have a people experience department. Uh, and then really explaining what the difference is um, and how you, you intend on demonstrating that, um, I think are, are, are great ways that, you know, you can start incorporating it and, and into your culture. And then it's not going to be, you know, a big DNI thing. It's rather going to be that, you know, that acceptance um, that you mentioned. And, and obviously, the earlier you, you do it, the better. You know, maybe it's in your vision. It's in your mission. It's in your values. Obviously, state it as many times as you can. It's in the welcome packet. You know, Zoom backgrounds, I think I got to update mine. Um, but I think that um, those are just uh, some ways that, you know, especially these smaller organizations can, can get started in the right direction. Awesome. Thank you. I mean, just this discussion today has impacted Cargo Logic and the fact that you want to be showing your values <laughs> all over your Zoom background, which is, which is great because that's a step in the right direction. Jennifer, over to you. What's one thing you'd like people to leave with? Oh, man. Um, I think so if you're much. in it. A- yeah, so much. So I think if you're in a position to do so, um, really check your values and make sure your actions match what you say you value. And not, you're not just putting out a mission statement or policies or trying to check a box or meet a quota for hiring, um, but that your company culture um, or your department culture really matches what you want it to be when you say that. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you so much, Brittany. Yeah, I feel like there's so much um, from this episode, but I feel like I'm also tying back into a lot of what Miles and Jennifer said when it comes to your culture within your organization. I do think that it's important that leadership always take a look at who makes up their company Because if you're seeing that you yourself, your company lacks diversity, then it's time to ask the question, why? Why am I not able to retain these talents who are from different different protected classes, different races, gender, et cetera? Why are they not comfortable here? Why are we not getting that those types of applicants when we're when we post a job? So really being aware. And starting to acknowledge that there might be problems because that's the only way you're going to be able to fix them in the end. Mm-hmm. Great advice. Thank you. And DC, what would you like everybody to walk away with this from? Well, because I'm big on action items. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm always big on things that you actually do. <laughs> and um, so I actually have a note for myself to rebrand HR to people experience. Even Yay! Just getting in early setting the good foundation. Um, I know that uh, our HR manager is working on like a new and improved employee handbook as we're starting to onboard people this month. So before that is published to everyone, we need to rebrand to people experience. Um, The other thing that I have that I would like other people to take away is to uh, niche the name your accuser thing. Stop doing that. If you're doing that, stop. Um, that I think that is something that is easy, <laughs> that you can make an improvement in your employee experience to just let go of that policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I really think that if your organization is large enough, we talked about outsourcing and bringing other people in for education and programs. Um, there are a lot of companies out there 
in the DEI space. And I think that those should be leveraged. So do some research there. Um, The startup that I mentioned earlier, uh, it's Dreamy, um, D-R-E-A-M-I. So Dreamy with an I instead of a Y. And they have some really good program. I'm sure there are plenty of other companies like them. And I think that those are are three good takeaways. Rebranding HR to people experience, stop the name your accuser, and look for outside help. Thank you. Look at the magic that's happened today. DC has her own action items. Miles has <laughs> his own action items. I'm sure Brittany and Jennifer do too. One of the things that I'm going to say is resources. So take an episode like this of the Blended Podcast, have your teams listen to it, and then talk about it. Create those safe spaces so that we can have the dialogue and we can create that impact. So thank you so much to DC, Miles, Brittany, and Jennifer for joining me today. Discrimination isn't an easy subject to talk about. Personal experiences can be difficult and painful. And as a society, we often don't want to be confronted with the fact that discrimination is also still so prevalent. But by being so open and honest here today, and maybe speaking up for some of the people who can't, hopefully we can spark some thoughts, make people think about their biases and ways of working, even if they might be unconscious. I do believe that a lot of people aren't bad. They're often acting out what they've learned or inherited from others. And that means that all of us have the power to help make change. Just by opening up conversations and making people stop and think and question those old beliefs. Because if there's anything we've learned from making the show, it's that the potential to be found when we all collaborate together is endless. Don't forget that you can reach out to me or any of the guests on social media if you have anything that you'd like to add to what we've talked about today. And remember to join us again next time for episode 19 of Blended, when we'll be diving into more thought-provoking issues around diversity, inclusion, and equality. We'll be talking about sexual harassment. You don't want to miss it, and I'll see you then. Thanks, everybody, for joining me today.